Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. Thrilled to have you on board with us today and really excited for the direction of the program today. We are going to be speaking and I'm going to introduce uh, a little more formally Senator Ted Cruz. All of you know him. He is a battle-tested conservative and that is uh, something that we desperately need. But uh, we all know Senator Cruz is someone who's a proven warrior for the things that are important to all of us, things like limited government, like economic growth, and highlighted, underscored the Constitution. Uh, and this is uh, one of those issues that Senator Cruz has been on, on the front end of so long. I, I think uh, pretty much all of our listeners, there's no question, you all know Senator Cruz as someone who's been on the front lines of issues from uh, our, the securing the border to Second Amendment issues, uh, certainly life and liberty of the unborn, and a host of other things. Senator Cruz serves on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, certainly everyone knows he is a Texan. Uh, he's a, a proud father, and uh, he is our guest. Senator, it's an honor to have you on the Freedom Caucus podcast. Well, Jody, it's great to, great to be with you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the fantastic work you do, and, and the entire Freedom Caucus does. You guys are doing incredible work in the House, and, and the difference that the Freedom Caucus has made in terms of helping provide a backbone, helping provide a, a foundation for the Republican Conference of the House, it's been transformational. I've been here before and after a Freedom Caucus, and let me tell you, y'all are making a huge difference. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for those kind words. And just the fact that you're a friend of the Freedom Caucus, we keep waiting on a uh, on the Senate Freedom Caucus to get get up over here. And Well, uh, we meet in a phone booth. <laughs> you need the phone booth to get them all in there. I know. Hey, listen, that's how, kind of how it started in the on the House side of things, too, just a handful. But I uh, really appreciate those kind words. Why don't we kind of springboard off of that? I think, uh, you know, we what brings us together, you and I, what brings our listeners together are conservative principles. I think, unfortunately, that phrase in itself is something that is used so much that we really, these days, kind of lose con uh, perspective of what we're even talking about when we talk about conservative principles. But we're talking about some of those things that go back to our nation's founding, uh, like everyone deserves freedom, yep. uh, that, that freedom is a, an idea that people should naturally have, that God has given us certain unalienable rights, that the role of government is to secure these rights and to protect these rights. And yet we are living in a time now that those ideas are being challenged. We have a Democratic Party, for example, who has both its leaders and activists who are challenging those ideas, who are bringing new ideas to the table that Americans have never even, in my mind at least, never even thought about. Things like the Green New Deal, yeah. like Medicare for All, like socialism. Uh, and you see it here uh, in the Senate side, I know, uh, in a greater way. So talk to us a little bit about the clash of these two visions, sure. that from our founders versus that which we're facing today. Well, I, I think our country right now is in the midst of a great debate, and it, it's a foundational debate about which direction America goes as a country. And, and one of the fundamental uh, battlegrounds that, that, that where we're having this debate is the, ba is the basic divide between free enterprise and socialism. You know, just a few years ago, socialism was this fringe view. You had Bernie Sanders embracing it and very few others. 
What is a little bit terrifying, and, and by a little bit I mean a lot, You're right. uh, is when you watch these 2020 Democratic presidential debates and, and, and the fringe socialist views of the Marxists have now become mainstream in today's Democratic Party. They're so driven by hatred of Donald Trump that that really is the animating feature of the Democratic Party today. You're seeing in the House that's consumed with impeachment that, that, that hatred of Trump is driving them further and further left. And, and this divide, you know, you and I have both seen poll numbers that show about 50% of young people think socialism may be a good idea. That's heartbreaking, but it's also a testament to our failures. Absolutely. And, and listen, as conservatives, as lovers of liberty, this is an argument, this is a debate we should welcome, we, we should dive in, because on the merits, number one, socialism, every place on earth it's been implemented has been a disaster. Socialism has brought poverty, it's brought misery, it's brought suffering, it has brought death. Socialism doesn't work. Take a look at a country like Venezuela. In 1950, Venezuela was the fourth wealthiest country on the face of the earth. If you look at GDP per capita, United States was number one, Switzerland was two, New Zealand was three, Venezuela was four. Wow. Then Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro came in with socialism, destroyed that mighty country. You have had millions of people fleeing Venezuela. People are literally eating out of trash cans in the alleyways because socialism is such a disaster. And what do the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanders and AOCs of the world say? Let's do more of that here. Let's embrace the failed economic policies that bring misery. On the other hand, free enterprise, the greatest enemy poverty has ever seen in the history of humanity is the American free enterprise system. So the leftists say, we care about the poor. Well, if you care about the poor, stop trying to make everybody poor, which is what socialism does. Instead, free enterprise, there's a reason people come from all over the world to America. Because free enterprise, you know my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad came to America in 1957 with $100 in his underwear and he couldn't speak English. He washed dishes making 50 cents an hour. But America was a land where if you came with a heart full of desire and hard work, you could achieve anything. That's what we're defending, and that, that's a fundamental argument about who we are as Americans. And I think case in point, and I think you hit it spot on, but uh, even in the last three years as, as we've watched the American economy turn around so dramatically – uh, there's been something in the ballpark of 6 million people who have come off food stamps. I mean, it is this system that lifts people out of poverty as opposed to the socialistic agenda and, and uh, the foundational beliefs therein. That, as you said, it, it, it drives people to poverty and death and a host of other things. So, so and, and Jody, let me mention something on what you just said, because you just cited my, my favorite economic stat of where we are. And, and what I encourage, particularly conservatives and Republicans, to, to, to when focusing on that number, you know, so many Republicans kind of behave like, like we're a bean counter with a green eye shade. And we, we treat that as a number on a pie chart. And, and I think as conservatives, we need to do a better job connecting with people's hearts. You know, those six million people that have come off food stamps, those are real people. Yeah. Those are moms and dads who three years ago they were dependent on the government for basic food. They couldn't eat without the federal government. And those same moms and dads tonight are coming home to their apartment. They're opening the front door. They're carrying groceries. They're setting groceries on the kitchen table, and they're looking over at their kids. 
And their sons, their daughters are looking up at them and suddenly they have a newfound respect. They have a newfound pride. There's a responsibility. Mom's providing for the family. Dad's providing for the family. Those are lives being transformed. Because a generation being transformed. Exactly I mean, it's breaking right. the chain. Yes. And, 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 and you look at the policies of socialism. They don't work. The worst thing you can do to someone is trap them in dependency. And, and that, sadly, is, is, is what the left is campaigning on. Absolutely. And it's, it's kind of hard to, to run against free. I mean, it's, but that's what we're up against. But the reality is there is nothing free. And when you talk about free under socialism, it is in itself bondage is where it leads. And it leads to destruction. Let's go a little bit further to some of the other radical ideas that are uh, being pushed upon us right now. You're from the great state of Texas. I'm from the great state of Georgia. Uh, both of these states have a, an enormous reputation on Second Amendment issues um, and the right to bear arms. But we are seeing this vision, this principle that brought uh, freedom to us and the guarantee of freedom that our founders gave us. These days, uh, it's being challenged in every way. Let's uh, Talk to us a little bit about the importance of the Second Amendment and why this is not only was well, obviously worth defending because it's in the Constitution, but just from a practical perspective of our liberties, our freedoms, why is this such a, an, an enormous issue for us to defend? Well, we're seeing the Democratic Party get more and more radical when it comes to the Second Amendment. We've seen the New York Times openly call for the repeal of the Second Amendment. We've seen former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens openly call for the repeal of the Second Amendment. We saw my former opponent, Beto O'Rourke, in the presidential campaign say, damn right, we're going to come take your guns. That, right. That's The Democratic Party is embracing that they want to forcibly disarm the American citizenry. And, and, and what you and I understand, and I know your listeners understand too, is the Second Amendment, it's not about hunting. Look, hunting's great fun. I enjoy, I enjoy going, going hunting. It's not about target shooting. The Second Amendment is about the fundamental God-given liberty. You and I and everyone has that if anyone comes into your house seeking to do harm to you and your family and your children, your God-given right to defend your life and your liberty. That is, is a profound right. Joseph Story, the Supreme Court Justice early in this country's history, described the Second Amendment as the palladium of all other liberties. That if you can't defend your home and your family, you are subject to tyranny. And yet, today's Democratic Party is embracing that they want the government to be able to forcibly disarm you and make you vulnerable. I, I think this is an argument that, 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 that we should engage on the merits. And by the way, it doesn't mean, as you know, every time we see a mass shooting, and, and there have been far too many mass shootings. We've had too many in Texas. I've sure. been on the ground uh, over and over and over again at Santa Fe, at Sutherland Springs, and Odessa. I, I've grieved with families. I've grieved with law enforcement officers. And the left and the media, every time there, there is a mass shooting, they say, you see, this is why we should take away everyone's guns. I can tell you in Texas, in Santa Fe, in that high school, I heard the students on the day of the shooting in the hospital room say the answer isn't to disarm us. It isn't to take away law-abiding citizens' right to keep and bear arms. The answer is go after the bad guys. And as Republicans, we ought to be focused on go after the criminals, go after the felons, go after the fugitives, and lock them up, stop them from getting firearms in the first place, and lock them up 
we ought to be focused on criminals, not disarming law-abiding citizens. And that actually keeps people much safer. Well, absolutely. And we all know that if you take guns away from law-abiding citizens, you're, you're never going to get them away from the bad guys. I mean, so that just uh, exacerbates the problem even more so because there there will always be weapons available through black market or whatever else. But but you hit it on the head. This is The Second Amendment is about protecting ourselves against tyranny uh, and defending the rights that we have both as individuals and families, but also as our nation. It's kind of what puts teeth in the Constitution that says we will be a free nation. You know, a few months ago, I did what ended up being an hour and a half discussion and debate uh, with Alyssa Milano, the the Hollywood actress and and left-wing activist, about the Second Amendment and gun violence. And she came to my office, and, and, and we talked about it. And, you know, I did that because I was hoping it would reach some people who wouldn't otherwise hear it. I think as as Republicans, we do too much preaching to the choir, too much talking to people who agree with us. And and we need to be doing more to win hearts and minds to talk to those who disagree. Exactly, or who've never heard young people, Hispanics, African-Americans, suburban women. You know, you look at one, and so I spent a lot of time with Alyssa, and we live streamed just so the whole 90-minute debate is out there. But, But I said, look, you know, you want to talk about, for example, defending the rights of women. The Second Amendment is a profound equalizer for women who are facing vulnerability to crime. And in fact, just the week we had that debate, there was a 28-year-old woman in Houston, Texas, who drove into an apartment complex, her parking lot, and and a series of of criminals approached her seeking to do violence. And she had a a handgun in her purse that she pulled out, and they ran away. And, and, And it saved her life. And I asked a question. I said, look, if you're a violent criminal, what would you rather face? An NFL linebacker who's unarmed or a five foot two woman like my wife Heidi who's packing heat? Right. And the beauty of the ability of being able to defend yourself is it gives women in difficult positions the ability that woman may, God knows what could have happened to her if she hadn't been armed and if those men who approached her late at, late at that night. And that happens every year there are roughly a million, one million defensive uses of a firearm in this country. Press never covers it. Right. Of people just like that, someone seeking to do violence and someone defends themselves, defends their family. And, and that's powerful. And by the way, on, on racial issues, one of the things I talked with Alyssa about also, you look at the history of gun control laws, some of the very first gun control laws we have were after the Civil War, they were part of Jim Crow. They were part of seeking to keep African-Americans vulnerable to violence from groups like the Ku Klux Klan because they didn't want African-American families to be able to defend their own families. They said, well, if you can't keep and bear arms and you saw states passing laws to disarm African-Americans so they could be vulnerable to terrorism and violence. The Second Amendment is about your right, my rights, every American's right to defend your family. Great. Uh, extremely well said. Let's move on there from here. You're, you're the uh, chair of the subcommittee on the Constitution, which I love. I would love to sit in some of those hearings that y'all have. But uh, one of the huge attacks that uh, seems to be increasing these days, be it through religious liberties or whatever, is the attack on free speech. Yeah. And in particular, a hot topic on that uh, would have to include the big tech industries and what's happening online we just had i just saw an article 
uh, today of, of how some like 300, I believe it was, of the president's ads were have been uh, uh, taken off some of the social media outlets. And I mean, we are seeing this become a regular yes. issue. Uh, so speak to this. Where is this whole argument going with free speech, particularly as it deals with the high tech industry? Well, I, I think, number one, it is an enormous problem. I think it is the single greatest threat to free speech. It's the single greatest threat to democracy. In That's a huge statement. It, it, it is a huge statement. I think it is bigger than our messed up colleges and universities, which is a real problem, and they're stifling free speech. And, and the reason is, look, there have always been biased journalists. From the very first days, from the very first journalists who were carving a message in a stone tablet, there were biased journalists. What's different is the massive power that big tech oh, yes. has aggregated. So William Randolph Hearst, at the height of yellow, yellow journalism, remember William Randolph Hearst basically got America into the Spanish-American War, knew a lot about biased journalism. He could not have imagined the power big tech has. Why is that? Number one, about 70% of Americans get their political news online. So it is the source for a supermajority of the public discourse. But here's the part that is so invidious. It's invisible. Big tech has the ability, if they don't like what you're saying, simply to shadow ban you, to, to, to silently have whatever you say, whatever you post, disappear into the ether. And you can't tell, nobody else can it. tell, just nobody hears. On the flip side, if they have views they want to promote, they can just collate your feed so you only see the views, you only see the information they want to. And, and the pattern, so I've chaired multiple hearings about the censorship and political bias of big tech. You know, Google, who I think is the worst of the offenders of big tech, Google produced a document that we had a hearing about. The document's title, and this is Google's own document, was The Good Censor. Wow. And Google talked about two, two visions of the internet. One was a free market, laissez-faire internet where people could speak and, and express their views. And the other was, and this was their, their language, a European censorship model where big tech decides what speech is allowed. And the examples they pointed to were Google, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And they quite openly embraced, we are choosing censorship. And you know, listen, this should be an issue that even those on the left should be upset about. I, framed really simply, who in their right mind would give a handful of Silicon Valley billionaires monopoly power to decide which political views are allowed to be expressed and which aren't? We've got to deal with it. Now, how you deal with it is hard. All right, so let's ask that. We've just got a couple of minutes left. So, so where do we go with this? Is it a breaking them up? Is it, what, what are some solutions that need to take place? So the solution is, is difficult. Let me say at the outset, nobody wants to see the federal government become a speech right. police. We don't want to see a federal agency deciding what speech What's, is allowed exactly. or not. That would be a terrible outcome. I've suggested there are at least three possible remedies to address the political bias and censorship from big tech. Number one, big tech has right now a special immunity from liability under what's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Congress passed it, but before you and I were here, right. but Congress passed it, that means big tech 
can't be sued for what's posted online. Everybody else can. You can sue any other outlet, but big tech has a special immunity for liability. So they would become a publisher rather than a platform. Exactly. Right. And the reason Congress gave them that immunity from liability is Congress believed they would be politically neutral. In other words, they would right. just it would be others posting so it wasn't fair to hold them liable for their content. Well, they've made clear that they're actively censoring, so they ought to face the identical liability everyone else does. There's no reason for a special political benefit Congress gives them that no one else gets. Right. That's remedy number one. Remedy number two is the antitrust laws, breaking them up under any measure. Google and Facebook, they're bigger than AT&T was when it was broken up under the antitrust laws. They're bigger than Standard Oil was when it was broken up under the antitrust laws. And you can't abuse monopoly power uh, to, to, to work against consumers. The third possible remedy is a consumer protection remedy. And it, it, it's one that sounds in, in fraud and breach of contract. And, and stated really simply, when you or I sign up to a social media company, our understanding as consumers is that if we follow someone, we'll see what they post, we'll see what they tweet. And if they follow us, they'll see what we post or we tweet. That core promise right at the baseline of big tech, we now know is a lie. That big tech is not honoring that promise. That some of the views they don't like, they're silencing. And if you choose to follow someone and they don't like their views, you don't get to see what they say. And if they don't like your views, the people who have affirmatively said, I want to know what Jody Heiss has to say, if they decide they don't like your views, those people don't get to see what you have to say. And so it's, it's, it's fundamentally an argument about your deceiving consumers by breaking your promise. Those are three remedies, all of which I've urged the Trump administration to pursue and, and, and all of which I'm, I'm pushing Congress to pursue. Well, Senator, I could not agree more with you on all three of those proposals and the, the magnitude of the problem. I mean, this is a massive threat. For the first time in the history of the world, I suppose, we have companies that literally can determine what people hear and what they say globally. I mean, this is not just something right here. You've got billions of people on Facebook and for these companies have enormous power and the capacity determined to determine what people hear. And a final point, I know we're running out of time, but one of the hearings I chaired, we heard testimony from an academic named Dr. Richard Epstein, Robert Epstein rather, uh, who's a respected academic, he's a psychologist, he used to be the editor of, of Psychology Today. Uh, he testified that in 2016, now he did extensive empirical analysis of Google, and he testified that his empirical analysis concluded that Google's manipulative search outcomes shifted a minimum of 2.4 million votes in 2016 wow. to Hillary Clinton, and he said if big tech does it again, in 2020, they could move up to 15 million votes. Now, here's the amazing kicker. Epstein is not a Republican. He's not a conservative. He voted for Hillary Clinton. He supported Hillary Clinton. He's a liberal Democrat, and yet he testified he's horrified to see big tech manipulating outcomes to subvert our democracy. It's a profound threat, and we got to take it seriously. Wow. All of these are chilling issues. Uh, I want to thank you, Senator Ted Cruz, for joining us. Always an honor to be with you, and we are grateful for you coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you. God bless you, and God bless the United States of America. Absolutely. Well, folks, listen, that's all the time we have for this edition of the Freedom Caucus podcast. Uh, we always thank you for joining us. 
And if you enjoyed this program, again, as always, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. For more information on the Freedom Caucus podcast, you can always follow us at facebook.com slash Freedom Caucus and on Twitter at Freedom Caucus. Until next time, hope you have a fantastic remainder of your day.